Good morning, everybody. It's very good to see you. Hey, Joe Rodman. Caught your eye there. Had to say hi. This morning, like Jordan said, uh, we're going to take a break from our Colossians series, and um, we're going to look at the book of Exodus together. Our passage for this morning is Exodus 1, verse 1, through Exodus 40, verse 38. As is normally our case here, we're going to read the passage together. So buckle up. Just kidding. Uh, We're not going to do that. We're going to be in the text a lot, um, but we're not going to read the whole thing together. This book of Exodus that we're about to look at, that we're studying in our men's and women's Bible studies, it's a book that has a lot of familiar stories in it. Uh, It's got the burning bush, the plagues, the Ten Commandments, the Red Sea, the golden calf, the the giving of the law, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, all these things that, um, to varying degrees, are somewhat familiar There's a reason why Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston and Disney have used Exodus as kind of the screenplay to Hollywood movies. But there's also a lot of things in this book that go beyond kind of that entertainment aspect. There's some kind of mysterious and apparently foreign aspects of this book, and sometimes some things that are really overlooked in the book of Exodus. But what we'll see And what we can know confidently is that this book has a lot to say to us today. It's not just a book for the Israelites back in the day. It's a book for us. It has a lot to say to us about who God is and about what kind of life he calls us to, to live in relationship with him. So this sermon that we're going to do this morning, it's going to be an overview sermon. We're going to take a high-level look at the book as a whole. Um, But as normally is the case with our preaching, we try to have the main message of the book really drive the main point or points of the sermon. And we're going to do the same thing today, even with a passage passage that's 40 chapters long. Um, The message of the book of Exodus is what's going to be our focus. As we try to take a broad look at this book, we're going to see the amazing things that its message has to say to us today. If we could boil down the message of Exodus, and I think in some ways it's impossible to do adequately, but if we could, the message might be summed up something like this. God makes his name known by his mighty acts of salvation. Again, God, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel and the one true God of the universe, he makes his name known, and he does so by his mighty, miraculous acts of deliverance and salvation. We'll look at this message in two parts and then one point of response. Um, There might be a slide here to show this, but first of all, God makes his name known. That's the first thing we're going to look at, what it means that God reveals himself in his name. And then we'll consider one of the primary ways, really in Exodus, the primary way that he does make his name known, and that is through his mighty acts of salvation. And this message of Exodus, it calls for a response for Israel and for us today as readers Exodus calls for us to respond to his mighty, self-revealing acts of salvation by trusting him and obeying him. We're to believe in him and we're to walk in his ways according to his words. We'll be looking at several passages, so have your Bibles ready. If you need help finding Exodus, go back to Genesis, flip a little bit to the right, and you'll find Exodus. And we're going to spend some time in chapter 34, and so go ahead and flip there now. This is Um, One of the key chapters in all of the book and really in all of scripture, but just a little context is uh, in chapter 34, it's after Israel just committed this heinous act of sin and idolatry with the golden calf. 
And God here for a second time declares his name to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so follow with me as I read Exodus 34, 5 through 8. It says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Let's pray together. Father, your word has so much to say to us. We know that it is your very breath, and we thank you that you have shown yourself to us through it. We pray that you would guide our thinking, guide our hearts this morning. And um, may they be lifted up to you to see you truly for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, my temptation is to spend the whole time just kind of talking about the big picture of Exodus. And I want to do that for just a few minutes, set the context of Exodus. Um, When we think about Exodus, Exodus is the second part of a five-part book of Moses, sometimes called the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Genesis began with creation and ended with the family of Jacob, who's also known as Israel, in Exodus, or in Egypt. Exodus then kind of picks up the story and tells the story of this family of Israel becoming a nation. They leave Egypt, they head out for the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. And then in the first part of Exodus, up until chapter 15, it's the story of their deliverance from Egypt, and that's what we're going to spend some time looking at today. But as they begin their travels from Egypt, they arrive, uh, they go through the wilderness for a little while, and then they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. That's a kind of a key pivotal chapter in Exodus 19. At Mount Sinai, they're given the law, first the Ten Commandments, but then a whole bunch of other commandments, instructions for the tabernacle, for the priestly sacrifices, 613 commandments by rabbinic counting, just just remember that number. You can count along if you, if you feel like it as you're reading the Pentateuch. But uh, we're not going to talk about all 613 commandments. There's a ton that we could say about the law in Exodus and in the Pentateuch. But we don't have a lot of time. So let me just say one thing at this point that will, I think, be important to keep in mind. The Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is sometimes called the Torah. And sometimes Torah means law, like we think of law, like rules, commandments, legal material. But really, the basic meaning of the word Torah is is broader. It's more like instruction or teaching. And so when we think about Exodus and when we think about the Pentateuch, there are laws in the Pentateuch, but that's not all it is. Really, the Pentateuch is a story. The Torah is a book with laws in it, but it's not a book of law. It's a story. It's a narrative. It's meant to be read as one book that tells this unifying story that's really a part of the larger story of the whole Bible. And so I think as we think about the law, we can think about the law as one part of this broader story. And Exodus is right at the heart of that. So let's keep that in mind as we're thinking about Exodus today and as we're doing our studies in Exodus over the coming weeks. Um, Back to Exodus, after Israel arrives at Sinai, they stay there receiving the law 
through the rest of Exodus, through Leviticus, and into the first part of Numbers. And then in Numbers, they leave Mount Sinai, they go through the wilderness, we're summing up a whole bunch of important stuff here. But then in Deuteronomy, they arrive just on the other side of Jericho, on the other side of the Jordan River, ready to cross into the Promised Land. And that's where Deuteronomy ends. The people fail to enter the Promised Land because of their sin, uh, their sin and faithlessness in Numbers 14, but the next generation is just getting ready to enter the Promised Land. That's a bit of the context of Exodus, a lot of important stuff there, but I think just a, keeping a high-level view that Exodus is the second part of this broader story of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Okay, so to the first point, God makes himself known. As Genesis ends and Exodus begins, things change drastically for the people of Israel. Instead of living alongside the Egyptians peacefully with the favor of the Egyptian king or the pharaoh, a new pharaoh rises to power and they no longer have favor in his eyes. Israel is afflicted, they're put into slavery under this new pharaoh in Egypt. In chapter 5, um, we see this key kind of confrontation between Moses and this new pharaoh. God calls Moses to, pe- to lead the people out of bondage. And in chapter 5, Moses comes to the pharaoh in Egypt and he says this, and I'm looking at the beginning of chapter 5. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and it says this. This is what they say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh replied, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This question that Pharaoh has, who is the Lord, and this statement, I don't know the Lord, this is really kind of a driving theme then for the rest of the book. This, this question about the Lord's name here in our English Bibles with the capital L-O-R-D, it's, uh, it, it actually started earlier, the theme of, of the name of the Lord started earlier in Exodus back in chapter 3. So let's flip back there again just to get a little bit more of the explanation of this great name that Pharaoh doesn't know. Uh, This is maybe the most familiar story in all of Exodus in chapter 3, the burning bush. God appears to Moses in this bush that's burning but doesn't burn up on Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai where they're going to arrive later. Um, God appears to him and calls Moses to lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, God tells Moses that he has seen the affliction of the Israelites. And he has come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into the promised land, Canaan. Moses is to return and confront Pharaoh and lead the people out of Egypt, but Moses at first is quite reluctant. He's hesitant to go. He gives all these excuses, but the first, one of the first things he says in verse 13 of chapter 3 is this. He says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So here, on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, from the mysterious fire of a bush that burns, 
that's on fire but isn't consumed, this miraculous act, God reveals himself in his name, the Lord, to Moses. This name, the Lord, in our Bibles, when we see the Lord in all caps like this, and I'm not sure how it is up on the slides, but um, it's in all caps in these, in these cases that we're reading today. It's the word Yahweh. It's God's divine name. Um, there's a long history of why it ended up being uh, in our Bibles with all caps, um, the Lord. But every time you read that word, the Lord, in your English Bibles, think his name, Yahweh. In God's covenant name here, as he reveals it to Moses, we get a glimpse of the profound significance of what it means for God to say, I am that I am, or I am who I am. He is the eternal, the self-sufficient one, the one and the only one who is, whose existence is dependent on nothing or no one. We could spend the rest of our time together this morning, and really we could spend the rest of our lives and into eternity together thinking about what this means, that God is the great I am. And sometimes it seems like all we need to do is just sit and let that sink in. It's a name, this name Yahweh, I am who I am. It's a name that, like God himself, cannot be fully comprehended. It can't be captured completely with human language. It's beyond the capability of human language to articulate, just as God himself is infinite and beyond containment or full comprehension by our finite minds and from our limited vantage point. And yet, this is a God who makes himself known. He reveals his name, his nature, his character, his attributes, his glory. This is a great act of grace. Moses eventually succumbs to this call from God, and he goes to Pharaoh, just like God told him to. He says, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, I don't know this name, this Yahweh. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? This means nothing to me. And I'm not going to obey him because I don't know him. When Pharaoh asks this question, who is the Lord, it sets the stage. And God is about to answer this question. He's going to answer it in many ways through the rest of the book of Exodus. Let's jump ahead quickly and see some places where he reveals his name. Chapter 7. There, when the Lord instructs Moses again to go back to Pharaoh, he assures Moses that Pharaoh is not going to respond well at first. In fact, it's going to take a long time, and in fact, God himself is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He says this in verse 3 of chapter 7. God says to, to Moses, Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This phrase, they shall know that I am the Lord, as the motivation for God's, God's delivering acts, this repeats regularly over and over through the plague narratives. As God reveals his name, himself, the Lord Yahweh, to the Egyptians, to Israel, to Pharaoh, to Moses, and to us as readers today through his word. We can rejoice that God is a God who makes himself known. He makes himself known in creation. He makes himself known in his mighty acts that we can look ar around the world and see. He makes himself known in our lives. He makes himself known most clearly in his son Jesus, and we'll talk about that more a bit later. But he also makes himself known, maybe in the most obvious and tangible 
and gracious way by his self-revelation in his word, in scripture, in the Bible. That's why we call ourselves Gresham Bible Church, because we see it as a great privilege that God has shown himself to us through the pages of scripture. That's why we're doing these studies in Exodus. That's why we preach expositional sermons. We believe that the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty God, who in some ways is completely unknowable, he has made himself known in human language. He's come down to our level in Scripture. And as the Lord makes himself known in Exodus through his mighty acts, we have the wonderful privilege of reading along with with the Israelites and seeing what God has done and coming to know him better as well. It's it's difficult. It may be it may not be too far to say that it's impossible to grow in our relationship with God and our walk with him and our knowledge and intimate relationship with him without spending time sitting and listening to him. We do it on Sunday mornings, we do it in our Bible studies. Hopefully we're doing it in our own time on our own. Um, this is it's a great privilege that God has shown himself to us in in his word and I hope that we take that seriously. I hope that we count that as a gracious gift and sit and listen to him and what he said to us. Chapter 14. Let's flip ahead if you're in your Bibles, which hopefully some of you are. Uh, Chapter 14. After the plague, when Pharaoh finally sends the Israelites out of Egypt after plagues and plagues over and over, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart one last time, and he pursues after Israel, who is encamped at the Red Sea. In chapter 14, starting in verse 17, God tells Moses he's going to divide the waters of the sea and lead the people safely through on the dry ground. But, he says, and this is 14 verse 17, he says this, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God makes his name known by defeating Egypt and Pharaoh in the plagues, and here one last final time at the Red Sea. And this brings us to our second point. God makes himself known, and the main way he does so in the book of Exodus is by his mighty acts of salvation. Jumping back again, we're going to do this a little bit, flipping around. I told you we would. Uh, to the beginning of the book. Exodus began, as we said, by picking up the story from Genesis. This this family has become a nation. Um, Jacob had left Egypt or his his land, the promised land, Canaan, come to come to Egypt, where Joseph already was, where God had preserved Joseph. And then in Exodus, we see this family grow into a vast multitude. Exodus 1 7 says. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. As Bible readers, that should sound somewhat familiar. This echoes the the, uh, commission and mandate and blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here, the author is telling us, Moses is telling us that that's exactly what's happening. People are fruitful and multiplying exceedingly and filling all the land. God is blessing them as he promised to do. And then even under slavery, under the oppression of this new Pharaoh, God's preservation of his people continues. The Egyptians ruthlessly make them their slaves and they make them work and they oppress them, but God is still at work to bless. It says in uh, just a little bit below in chapter one, it says, the more they were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So they're fulfilling that creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, and they're doing so not only in spite of the oppression of the Egyptians, but because of. The more they're oppressed, the more they spread. Pharaoh's command, uh, Pharaoh commands that all the firstborn in Israel are killed, um, but they continue to be fruitful and multiply and grow even stronger. The, the author takes great effort to say that they're fulfilling this promise, this blessing to uh, multiply and be fruitful. The Lord is blessing just as he has promised to bless. And as this theme continues, we get into the plague stories. Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh, gets its answer in a series of miraculous and wondrous displays of the Lord's sovereign power over creation. It begins with some smaller scale miracles, at least um, you could call them smaller scale miracles. Aaron's staff turns into a snake, and then it builds from there. And the water of Nile of the Nile River is turned to blood. And it says there in chapter 7, verse 17, again, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Then come the frogs and the gnats and the flies, followed by the death of all of Egypt's livestock, and then boils and great hail like, ha- like nothing that has ever been seen in Egypt. Then locusts, then pitch black darkness, and then the tenth and final plague, the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. At every point in this sequence of God's mighty acts, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and the glorious name of Yahweh is on display. Time and again, God says he is sending these mighty miracles, these plagues, so that they shall know my name is Yahweh. And then as the plague narratives and this Exodus story of them leaving Egypt comes to a dramatic Conclusion at the Red Sea, there God displays his name and power over Egypt and over all creation once again. Israel crosses the sea on dry ground with the water miraculously piled up. And I can't help but picture that Charlton Heston movie that we watched as kids and the sweet special effects of the 70s or 80s or whatever that was. But the Lord send, then sends the waters, as you know, to come gushing back down over the, over the Egyptian army. They He strikes Pharaoh and the Egyptians with one final defeating blow. The Lord has shown himself to Pharaoh. He's shown himself to the Egyptians. And through them, he's shown himself to Israel and to all the world and to all who see and hear of these mighty acts of salvation and to us as we read them today. In chapter 15, um, we see Israel's response to God's miraculous mighty acts at the Red Sea. This is what we read for our call to worship. They sing this song. It starts off and says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord, Yahweh, again, all caps there, That's it, the people of Israel are singing and proclaiming the covenant name of God. Yahweh is the, a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And later in the song, it says in verse 11, it says, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder, wonders? This is a rhetorical question. The answer to who is like you is no one is like you. There's no one like Yahweh. Like the Israelites, as we see God's mighty acts on display here, And as we grow to know him and see him for who he is, our response 
should be to trust him, to rejoice in him, and to thank him and praise him for what he's done. We praise him for his, his powerful work, like the work that he did in Egypt. But, and this is a really important addition to this, this message of Exodus, it's not just God's raw power that's on display here. His faithfulness and his love are also a really important part of what we see in God declaring his name and making it known. Just a little bit further in this song of the sea that the Israelites sing, they say, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. It's his steadfast love that is the motivating factor in his mighty acts of deliverance. He delivers Israel because of his covenant promises and love that comes from those covenant promises, his love for Abraham and for his descendants. This people, the people of Israel, It's a distinct people. It's God's elect people chosen for his purposes, not because of their righteousness or anything inherently good or valuable or worthy in them, but simply because of God's sovereign choice and his steadfast love. His prerogative as Lord is the basis for his love and his mighty acts for his special people. We see this distinct display of God's power and love in Exodus through the plagues. The Lord sends flies on Egypt but not on Israel. He distinguishes between the livestock of Egypt and the livestock of Israel. And then in the 10th plague, in the final plague, the firstborn of Egypt are struck down, but Israel's firstborn are preserved as the Lord sees the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts and he passes by and preserves them. The Lord does this, he says, so that, again, this should be sounding familiar, so that they may know that the Lord makes Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God delivers his chosen people because of his love for them, and the mighty saving acts we see are on display for all to see, not just for Israel, not just for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The Lord is doing this to show who he is so that, again, as he says in 9.16, my name, Yahweh, may be proclaimed in all the earth. Jumping ahead a couple chapters from 15, we're at 18 now. After Israel crosses the Red Sea, they're met there by Moses' father-in-law, a man named Jethro, who's a mysterious and, I think, wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful character in the book of Exodus. But Jethro comes out to meet them in the wilderness, and Moses recounts to Jethro all of God's mighty acts that he did in Egypt. And Jethro rejoices, and it says here in verse 18, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord, Yahweh, had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods. Jethro knows who Yahweh is. Jethro represents kind of a counterpart to the character of Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh, Jethro is a Gentile, a non-Israelite. He's a Midianite and not part of God's chosen people, Israel. But God has made his name known, his name Yahweh, known to Jethro through the deliverance of the people of Israel. Unlike Pharaoh, however, Jethro sees this and hears what God has done and responds by rejoicing and by praising the one true God of Israel. And for us today, we too come to know him by his glorious display of mighty acts of salvation to save a distinct people. By faith in Christ, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. 
children of the promises God made to him and his descendants. As Christians, we are God's elect. Now, there's a lot of theology in here that we can't get into today, but it's, it's a true reality that, like Israel, we are chosen by God. We are a special people that experience the blessings of God's chosen people. We're adopted into the family of faith through Christ. We're recipients of his steadfast love and his mighty acts of salvation. The book of Exodus is not just an Old Testament book that's outdated and written to different people. It's a book book that says a lot to us today. It's a book that its message is the gospel message. So as we go back and think about this theme of the Lord making himself known, it culminates in chapter 34, which we have already read together. This, in chapter 34, gives the most definitive statement of the Lord's name, of Yahweh. Here again, God declares his name to Moses at Mount Sinai. This is the second time he declares his name to Moses at Mount Sinai, like he did in chapter 3 from the burning bush. Let's let's read it again, starting in verse 5 of Exodus 34, just to think about it now in terms of this as a declaration of Yahweh, what it means, what his name means. The Lord, verse 5, chapter 34, Yahweh descended in a cloud and stood with him, Moses, there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's a lot there, but this is God's name. This is what Yahweh means. He's a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of steadfast, faithful, covenant love, and a God of righteousness and justice. Moses' response in verse 8 is as it should be for all of us. He quickly bows his head to the ground and worships. To grasp the significance of God's name as he declares it here in Exodus 34, we have to consider a bit of the context. This comes immediately after another famous or rather infamous story in Exodus. Back in chapter 32, right before this, as you know, Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days. People are are impatient. And so they, with uh, the help of Aaron, Moses' brother and the high priest, they fashion this golden calf, this image that they start worshiping as if he's the God who brought them out of Egypt. God's gracious, or God's revelation uh, of his name in chapter 34, it's against the backdrop of this grievous and, and really terribly sad act of idolatrous sin in chapter 32. Even as God is giving them the law, they're breaking it in the, in the worst way possible. One pastor says that this is like committing adultery on your honeymoon, and I think that's, a, that's an apt analogy. It's a horrible sin. But God says his name is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's name is Yahweh and his character is gracious. It's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And yet, it also says he does not overlook sin. He will by no means clear the guilty, it says. This combination of God's grace and his justice. It's the great and glorious paradox of our God. 
This definitive statement of God's name and character in Exodus 34, it echoes throughout the rest of the Bible, all through Scripture. Exodus 34, 6 through 8 is probably the most often quoted part of Scripture in Scripture. The prophets, the Psalms, the New Testament, they repeatedly refer to this, either citing it explicitly or alluding to it. Um, And they do so to remind God's people who God is. God's revelation of himself in Exodus here culminating in chapter 34, points ahead, though, to a greater work of redemption and of salvation from slavery. Going on a little bit further in chapter 34, God tells Moses that his mighty acts of salvation are not finished here. He says in verse 10, he says, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, And the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This future-oriented promise, it certainly looks ahead to the time when God will bring them into the promised land and um, fulfill his promises to give them that land. But I think it looks ahead to marvels even greater than those uh, that will come in the immediate future for Israel. Greater acts of salvation that display the glorious name of Yahweh even more. The Lord makes his name known most fully and climactically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's at the cross that we see God both judging sin and forgiving it at the same time. Through Christ, God atones for sin and redeems his people from its bondage. He will by no means clear the guilty and leave sin unpunished. It would be out of step with his holy nature, simply and arbitrarily to clear the guilt of those who deserve it. For those who bear uh, guilt, those who deserve to be punished for our hard-hearted rebellion against him. In, In a lot of ways, we're all like Pharaoh in our hearts. So our gracious God has taken that guilt upon himself. In the person of the Son, in Christ, our Savior, He has borne our sins and paid the penalty of death that we all deserve. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb for the Israelites marked their doors and signaled to the Lord's angel of death to pass over their houses, so too we, those who are sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ, we are saved. We're redeemed by the blood of the spotless lamb. We experience what Scripture pictures all throughout the rest of Scripture, pictures as a second exodus, redemption and freedom from sin and its bondage. Jumping all the way to Revelation, it says this in chapter 1, it says, by the blood of Jesus, we have been freed from slavery to sin, just like Israel was saved from slavery in Egypt. And then continuing on in Revelation 1, quoting from Exodus 19, it says, he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's quoting from Exodus 19 here. Exodus points to Jesus and to the gospel by showing us who God is, by God declaring his name. He is a God who makes his name known, and his name, Yahweh, is revealed perfectly in Jesus, his son. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, it says in John. The invisible God has been made known in Christ. God's mighty acts of salvation culminate in Christ. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus present to us the fullest display of the Lord's justice and mercy and grace. 
his steadfast love and righteousness, his holy perfection and forgiveness of our sins. Indeed, his glorious name is revealed in Christ. And this brings us to our final point. When we read Exodus, it calls for a response. The people of Israel, as they saw who God was, were called to respond in a certain way. And God's mighty, self-revealing acts of salvation call for a response from us as well. What the Lord wanted from the Israelites and what he wants from us today is to trust him, to believe the promises and the power and the love that he has for us, and to obey him and walk in his ways. In Exodus, there are glimpses of faith of the people of Israel responding well. At times, the Israelites do believe God, and they listen to his words, and they obey him. One example is in chapter 4, when Moses first goes to the Israelites and tells them, God is coming to deliver you out of Egypt. They respond by believing and worshiping him, it says in 4.31. And then at the end of chapter 14, after the Lord struck down the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, it says this, quote, Israel saw the great power that the Lord Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh, the Lord, and they believed in him, the Lord, and in his servant Moses. It seems like at this point, Israel gets it. They, for a moment, at least, they believe. They see who Yahweh is and they believe. Sadly, however, this in chapter 14 is the last time in Exodus that it says that Israel believes, that they have faith. In fact, it's the last time in all of the Pentateuch where Israel is said to be a faithful people. From this point on, their response to God is characterized primarily by a lack of faith. Unfortunately, they fail in their faith much more than they succeed. And so the main way, in a a lot of ways, I think this is true to say, the main way that Exodus exhorts us to trust and obey is by highlighting how Israel failed to do so. We see this immediately after they cross the Red Sea in chapter 15. Um, Just three days into their wilderness travels, immediately they start grumbling against God and against Moses. They, have a, they lack water, and God miraculously provides water, just like he's shown himself faithfully to do. They start drinking the water, and then they set out again, and just immediately, at the beginning of chapter 16, they start to grumble again, this time because they don't have food. They say, um, they say this, and this is just a, a sad reality of the, the way that the Israelites respond, and if we're honest, the way that we often respond to God as well. In chapter 16, verse 3, they say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, they complain. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And again, then God responds and says this to Moses. He said, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh your God. So they grumble, they lack faith. God graciously, because he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy and grace and steadfast love, he provides meat for them in quail that he miraculously sends. This crazy picture of of these birds from heaven that provide food for these thousands of people. And then manna, bread from heaven, that they eat for the 40 years that they are in the wilderness. Immediately, though, after God provides quail and manna, what do they do? They start grumbling again. Uh, This time again for the the lack of water, which God has just showed that he's willing to and certainly able to provide all that they need. 
but they forget the marvelous and many supernatural displays of the power of God that they have seen over and over again in Egypt and now into the wilderness wandering. They forget who the Lord is, and they turn quickly to grumbling, to complaining, and crying for a return back to Egypt. One of my friends used to say, you can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Israel. And uh, it's, it's so true in the story of Exodus. Their grumbling attitude betrays in their hearts a deep lack of faith. Their struggles were real, for sure, in Egypt, in the wilderness, but they had seen God, God act. And in their faithlessness, they forget his goodness and power, and so they grumble against him. The obvious and concrete application point here for us today is let's not be a grumbling people. A complaining attitude, like the Israelites grumbling, displays an ingrateful heart and an immature faith. Let me quickly, though, say this to clarify. This is not to say that every kind of complaint comes from a sinful lack of faith. The problem here is not simply that they're voicing their struggles and their suffering to God. Earlier, remember, God had heard their cries of affliction, and he had responded with grace and with power and with might to save them. And throughout Scripture, all over Scripture, an often overlooked reality in Scripture is that God's people cry out with appropriate, faithful laments to God for their circumstances. The Psalms are full of these kinds of laments. And even Jesus on the cross quotes from Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Complaining to God, lamenting to God is not the problem. Here in Exodus, the Israelites aren't just honestly and faithfully bringing their complaints to God. Their grumbling is a sinful response, and I think the author, by showing it repeatedly, and then again later on in the Pentateuch, I think he's making the point to say this is a lack of faith. They are, it's a sinful response to their circumstances, and it comes from a heart of not having faith instead of trusting God. They don't trust in his provision. They forget who he is and what he's done for them over and over in these mighty acts. As we read Exodus, may we learn from Israel's faithlessness. May we be a people characterized instead by faith, a people who know the Lord and who worship him and rejoice in all that he's done for us in his steadfast love. Even as we do come to him with honest cries of our suffering and our sorrow. May we not be a grumbling people. There's certainly much we can complain about. There's, there's circumstances in our lives that are worthy of lament. But let us bring those complaints to our God who hears and knows and cares and who is mighty to help us in whatever struggles we face. May we never tire of reminding ourselves and each other of his mighty acts of salvation, which again are most fully realized and displayed in Christ. God's power is greater than Pharaoh or any other ruler or any other king on earth or in heaven. In Jesus' death, he has conquered death itself. And he is merciful and compassionate. In his steadfast love, he did not spare even his own son. He is worthy of our trust, and he is worthy of our full obedience. Getting close to the end here. There's so much more we could say. But one other way that God shows his, makes his name known in Exodus is by giving the law. We've touched on this a little bit. It's an, an aspect of Exodus that's really a big deal, but um, we're limited on time, so we can just say a little bit. 
In chapter 20, another famous episode in Exodus, God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, just before that, though, however, in chapter 19, when Israel had first arrived at this mountain of God, God said to them, he says this, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation.'" The ideal here that's presented when they're first arriving at Mount Sinai to get the law is that Israel would listen to the words of God, that they would believe in him, and that they would obey his law. If they did, they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And quickly, however, as we've seen already, they do not trust him, and they certainly do not obey him. Not only do they fall into idolatry with the golden calf, which we've already talked about, but they also continue their pattern of grumbling, of faithless grumbling, immediately after they leave Mount Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. Then in Numbers 14, on the other side of Sinai, they arrive at the entrance to the promised land, but because of the lack of faith, they don't obey and they don't go in. And so uh, that whole generation dies in the wilderness. This pattern of faithless Disobedience and rebellion against God continues for the Israelites through the Pentateuch and really through the rest of the Old Testament. So instead of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they become a kingdom with priests, an unholy nation who needs this elaborate system of sacrifice and priestly mediation in order to live in the presence of a holy God and not be wiped out by his holiness. As we go on from chapter 20, the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, there's more and more laws and commandments. They're given graciously to help God's people know him, to know his character, to know what he wants and how to live with him, with his holy presence among them. Throughout the rest of Exodus and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Israel is called again and again to respond by believing God and by trusting him and by obeying him. But again and again, they fail to do this. They fail to obey his commandments and trust him. The laws they were given at Mount Sinai did not work to change their faithless, rebellious hearts. In fact, the laws of Sinai, and I think this is one of the most important things we can think about when we think about the Pentateuch as a story, the laws at Mount Sinai were never presented as the solution to the sin problem. They were never meant to achieve the kind of righteousness that Abraham had received by faith as a gift from God the kind of righteousness that's credited and given to us on the basis of faith. This is not something that the law would ever be able to achieve. So in one sense, the book of Exodus, its message is a bit of a bleak message. It's a message about Israel's failure to trust God and to obey his laws, his words. And yet, Israel's faithlessness and failure points ahead to something better, to a better future. There is something new and better yet to come that the Pentateuch itself envisions in the future. Later, in Deuteronomy, at the very end of Deuteronomy, as Israel is just getting ready to enter the promised land, God tells, Moses tells them that God will do a new work, something different than the covenant and the commandments at Mount Sinai. This will be a work of God, not a work that they can achieve, a work of the heart. And then Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, which draws heavily on Deuteronomy, he looks at this hopeful expectation of Deuteronomy and unpacks it even further. 
He says this in Jeremiah chapter 31. He says that there is a day coming when the Lord will make a new covenant with his people, not like the covenant he made with them at Sinai when he brought them out of Egypt. This is the new covenant, he says. And here's, here's the quote. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know Yahweh, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord Yahweh. We won't be a kingdom with priests. We are a a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So even from the perspective of the Pentateuch, and then certainly from the perspective of Jeremiah, there's something better yet to come. Sinai wasn't the solution. The commandments that God gave to Moses and to the people of Israel We're never going to fix the sin problem. It would need to be this new covenant, a work of the heart that God did by grace. And for us, this great day has come. The new covenant is here. Through Christ and by his spirit, we have been given this new heart that Jeremiah talks about and Deuteronomy talks about. We've been given a heart that has his law of love and life written upon it. As we've been looking at Exodus this morning, and as we'll continue to think about Exodus over the coming weeks in our men's and women's studies, I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of Yahweh and of his son, Jesus Christ, and in our faith in him. He has made himself known. Let us trust him, obey him, and live a life of worshiping him for his great and mighty acts of salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your grace to us, your steadfast love, your slowness to anger, your patience, your mercy. We know we need it. We thank you that you have acted justly by sending your son and um, that his sacrificial blood as the perfect spotless lamb have atoned for our sins. Thank you that um, we have your law written on our heart and you've done a work that we couldn't do. You've changed our hearts to know you to walk with you and to live with you. We pray that you would help us to be a people of faith, a people who trust you for who you are, and a people who obey your word and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.